Episode 265 of Retro Encounter, RPG Fans Weekly Podcast of Many Topics. I'm Mike Solosi, and today is the first episode of Supergiant Games Month, in which we are going to record three episodes about Supergiant Games' first three games. And joining me today for a special Bastion episode is Alana Hags. Hello. And Eva Padilla. Hey. Uh, Alana, Eva, we're here to talk about Bastion, the 2011 uh, indie RPG from Supergiant Games. Uh, a pretty small development team on this one. Supergiant has grown over the years, but I think the it was something like uh, six or seven core staff people made this game, and then they brought in other people for things like individual voice and music performances. So this is an indie-ass indie game, and a really, really good one. Yeah, a really good one. Seven is right. Yeah, it was essentially two employees who worked, a number of employees who worked for EA, and they all went off to make this game in them. I think it was Amir's father's like kitchen or something or their house, and mm -hmm. it really is the like like the groundwork of a now really well regarded studio, and they deserve all the success they've had. But Bastion is yeah a really really solid game, and I'm sure we're going to get into that. Oh, we will, and um. I mean, we're talking about them as a, as a platonic ideal of an indie studio and uh, all of the acclaim that they've received. Uh, part of the reason that we decided to have Supergiant Games Month be this month was because a bunch of us are playing their most recent game, Hades, and enjoying it very much. Well, we're, we're not going to discuss Hades in this episode. We'll save that for some Game of the Year talk. Uh, but it, it had Supergiant on the brain, and we had this kicking around as an idea, a, a Supergiant month as an idea for uh, a number of years on our sort of big ideas board. And this time that flower is uh, is deciding to bloom. Uh, so Eva, what are your general thoughts on on Supergiant and, uh, and, and, and uh, what's your background going into Bastion? Yeah, um, I adore Supergiant. I really love their kind of design sensibilities and their arts and the music. Um, my background is I first played Bastion about two and a half years ago, I think. That was my first Supergiant game. And then I played uh, Transistor shortly after that. Um, I really liked Bastion the first time I played it. I loved Transistor. I quickly became a favorite of mine. And then I just uh, got the uh, true ending in Hades uh, about a month and a half ago. Uh, absolutely love that game the only one i haven't touched yet is pyre which we'll be playing later this month so i'm very excited i think this is a as you mentioned a platonic ideal of an indie studio they're great love them love everything about them basically <laughs> all right and uh alana i think uh, you told me before recording this is your first time playing bastion it is, yeah, and actually this is, other than Hades, this is the first Supergiant game I've beaten. I have played a bit of Transistor before, um, it didn't click with me and I cannot put my finger on why, it might have just been like a like wrong time, wrong place kind of situation, because I love everything about them, and like Eva, I 
even though I haven't like played most of their games before Hades, like I love the art style, I love the music, I love the way they tell stories, I love the voice acting, I love everything about them. So when Transistor didn't click for me like five years ago, I was really frustrated because I was like, why can't you get into this? And then I was really glad that Hades clicked. And like when Bastion came out, I think 2011, wasn't it? It was an Xbox Live mm-hmm. arcade game. And I remember doing a lot of reading around uh, Supergiant at the time because I just found them really fascinating. And I found like it was kind of the time where indie really started to boom. And when digital storefronts really started to take like like take precedence over not over physical media but like it was definitely the first time i remember them being really heavily involved in the conversation um but yeah like i i just i i'd always been interested in their stuff and always wanted to get into it and then there was just this barrier and then hades has apparently just dismantled that barrier and now i want to play everything super giant so i'm really really excited to get through to the rest of the games this month and yeah, really excited to talk Bastion because it's just, it's just, it's pretty much all positive, I think. Oh yeah, no, this is going to be a positively tinged episode, unlike uh, maybe some recent game journal episodes. <laughs> yeah, uh, sorry about that. But uh, before I go into my background with Bastion, I want to hit a point that Alana brought up a moment ago. Uh, digital storefronts and Xbox Live Arcade were perfect timing for Bastion because uh, Bastion came out in 2011 and uh, Steam had been about seven or eight years in by then and Xbox Live Arcade had been maybe one or two years in by then. But around the around that era, Xbox Live Arcade did something called Summer of Arcade where they heavily promoted a couple indie games uh, in like a celebration every year. And I remember that... Uh, uh, Oh, what's that time traveling platformer game? Braid um, or Braid? Yeah, yeah, Braid. Yeah, like like Braid. Uh, really um caught on around one of those summer of arcade events, and uh, it 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 just seemed like it was a bit. XBLA was a bit of a hit maker that helped um the indie boom a little bit, and um XBLA and Steam being extremely accessible digital storefronts with prices very low and a lot of excitement about uh about um, Summer of Arcade and big Steam sales made, uh, I think really helped uh, uh, indie developers and the timing for Supergiant to come out with a game in 2011 that's as rock solid as Bastion was, and to be on platforms like, I think XBLA originally in 2011 and Steam about a year later uh, was just, I mean, incredible timing and luck on their point to make this game like I'm, I mean, it's a great game, so it deserves to be big. But you know, like it, they really maximized their window for exactly when to land in terms of uh, when digital storefronts were blossoming. And um, but personally, I have never owned an Xbox, so I, I played this for the first time on Steam uh, pretty soon after it came out. I uh, I built my current uh, desktop PC in 2012, and uh, I was really excitedly getting a bunch of steam games that that i couldn't uh that that couldn't run very well on my school laptop so i'm pretty sure i played bastion in 2012 or 2013 i'd have to check my old blog list to find out exactly when and uh and had uh, a lot of fun with it thought it was thought it was great um didn't uh, never really replayed it but earlier this year there was a uh, a switch sale on bastion and transistor i think bastion was uh was three dollars and transistor was four dollars and i thought to myself perfect I'll buy both of them and uh, and replay Bastion. So that's exactly what I did. Uh, similar to Alana, I, pl- I played Transistor um, also on Steam, 
shortly after it came out, but I, I only got to maybe the halfway point. It, I was struggling a little bit with it, and it, I didn't connect with it the same way I did with Bastion. I ended up beating Transistor for the first time uh, this spring right after playing Bastion. So yeah, I've recently played Bastion and Transistor, and uh, for this podcast, I to refresh myself, I didn't replay the whole thing again. I, I loaded up a new game plus and, uh, and messed around for the first couple levels again. Um, but it's worth it because this game is fun start to finish. Let's go back to the beginning. Um, in Bastion, you're a character enigmatically called The Kid, and you fall from the sky and land in what appears to be the ruins of your home. And uh, it's unclear what's happening at first. Uh, there's a mysterious narrator um, speaking about your every action, like the kid didn't know what hit him. Like if you made, like if he uh, if you sustained damage or something. And as you walk al along the environment the environment reconstitutes around you. Like, like it seems like it's an empty sky or an empty void, but if you take a few, a few steps forward, the hallway and the doors and the walls and everything um, just sort of appears at, like, a, like it's a video game loading its environment assets, which is a really cool effect, the narration and the environment cre being created around you until after you, you know, stumble through the first stage, you end up in at the Bastion, which is a empty meadow that appears to be a safe space away from whatever happened that made the entire world disappear. So, uh, starting with you, Eva, very early impression, like what, what was going through your head or at least what was your, or maybe what was your reaction, uh, to the first few, uh, stages in Bastion? Well, the first thing I was thinking of, uh, when I was playing this was how beautiful the world is and especially for an Xbox Live Arcade game, you know, at first, you had game, a game like Braid looked fine, but the other games that were around that time, you know, I think Castle Crashers and such, they were not really uh, visually rich like this game is. And when you look at the, when you look at the backgrounds and how they work with the music and you have, as you mentioned, this world kind of forming back together at your feet, it gives this strange sort of sense of power already to the kid um, as they're walking through this world. It's like the world doesn't exist unless the kid's feet kind of wills it. And that kind of already gives you the sense of power as you're walking through this world. So you think, I'm going to become a character that goes through, um, that goes through this world in a very kind of power fantasy way. And that's what you think about it, but it definitely turns out to not be like that, um, which is something that I think is really impactful about the game. It gives you the weird feeling of, I'm not sure where the exit to this room is. I better walk around the perimeter until I can find one. <laughs> and it, uh, and, and it, and it's a, a visual flair that's at least uncommon. Um, uh, Alana, what were your early impressions of the game, uh, like, at least to your memory? Um, well, very similar, really. Like, I think... Gen Z's artwork across all of these games, I'm sure we'll come back to it multiple times. Her, the way she designs worlds and the ways that she like creates these areas and the way they unfold as well is just so magical and like, yeah, like you say, there's things to come that obviously don't make it seem as wonderful and as like empowering as maybe we thought. But I think in particular, like the first thing, and the, I knew this going in because like I think it's the thing that Bastion is really famous for, uh, the narrator. Um, 
wow, like what an impressive and powerful way to use a storytelling device in such a way that like informative, sometimes funny. And it's just, it's very welcoming and he's very charming. Like, you know, you fall off the ledge and he's just like, oh, just kidding. When you reappear back on the like surface (laughs) and it feels like everything, like even within like the first 10 to 15 minutes of the game, you can tell that like, the way that the pathways are laying out in front of you as you walk around, the way that the narrative or the narration like unfolds as you do things, like you swing your hammer and you break a load of boxes and um, the narrator will make a comment about you like being really violent or angry. And you're like, well, well no, because I'm just getting money out of the boxes. So why, you know, it kind of makes you think about the way you're playing the game as well. Um, but it's just so, like the vocals, the the voice work, the artwork unfolding and then even just like the music is a bit dynamic and Darren Corb does a really you know the audio mixing in this game is fantastic as it is but like the way that it it's so dynamic and it changes depending on situation it, it, it just all weaves together and it like you're it's like you're right at the beginning of a very big tapestry that's being stitched together as you go and yeah I was hooked pretty much from the first line I would say I think it's amazing how Darren Corb puts the music together because when when I kind of look back on it and piece it kind of piece it out into its separate ideas there's a lot of different genres that are being blended together in this you have this sort of folksy americana sound you have a bit of yeah. uh kind of you know old school rock to it and a lot of trip hop influence from like late 90s like late 90s uk and such yeah and you don't really think about how many disparate elements there are because it just feels cohesive and it feels so singular definitely yeah um i know um i remember even bringing this up a while ago it was probably on a different episode it might have even been on a rhythm episode but um i watched the no clip documentary for this and probably will do for all of the other games (laughs) um and darren corb said in that interview he was like i basically had to come up with my own genre and interestingly enough like definitely with hades and i think with transistor as well he gives them like really unusual names and he hasn't done that with Bastion, but you can definitely tell like that fu- the fusion of all these different styles and genres of music have really informed the world of Bastion, and it really makes it feel like, like even though it's an isometric top-down action RPG, like I I can't think of anything else like it in terms of presentation or sound or style at all. Okay, so a few follow-up points. Um, first of all, shout out NoClip. Uh, NoClip is a <laughs> Is, is a video series run by Danny O'Dwyer, who was formerly with GameStop, I'm sorry, GameSpot UK, and occasionally Giant Bomb for many years. Then he left, uh, <clears throat> then he left that whole CNET family to make um, um, video game short form documentaries. Basically, all of which I've, that I've seen are great. Um, I think I'll, it's maybe the definitive best way to hear um, the Final Fantasy XIV saga told uh, by by an English language um, organization is uh, the no clip on FF14. I think is required listening for FF14 fans. Yeah. But oh uh, uh, yeah, so so no clip, great stuff. Um, I haven't heard their uh, super giant stuff now, but I think I will very soon. <laughs> um, and second, back to the narration, it, it is so crucial to me um, because it firmly places this game in the third person. The care the player is not you. The player is the kid. Uh, and it's and you're sort of watching something unfold that is out 
uh, that is sort of out of the like like they're they're putting the pieces back of a puzzle together that was assembled long ago, and you're reassembling it as you go. And, and it just again, it just feels different than an isometric action game where you can see most of the map or the whole map from the beginning. And uh, it, it's like it's like you're turning the pages of a storybook with this uh, narration and this world creation. And Logan Cunningham as the narrator, oh. whose, whose name whose name is Rux in the uh, when you meet him in the Bastion, he's a uh, he's a uh, you well, know a the wolf stranger or... first, isn't it? You don't find out it's oh, yeah, Rux yeah. until that's, halfway through, right. yeah. That's right. Yeah, he's he's called the stranger, and then you eventually learn his name is Rux. But he's he has like a a big um, Wilford Brimley mustache. He's a a, a real <laughs> rustic looking dude. But that uh, but Logan Cunningham's narration is so textured and the voice so rich that uh, I, I would do weird things to find more narration. Uh, <laughs> whenever you equip a new combination of weapons for the first time, because there's a weapon system in this game, and, and after, once you have two, you're allowed to equip two at once. Every time you equip a new combination, he'll give you some comment. And <laughs> the, the final two weapons are uh, basically an explosive mortar and an explosive rocket launcher. And he'll just and he'll just say something like, "Now that's just unnecessary." <laughs> and that, that uh, like, and just getting comments like that from uh, motivated me to unlock more of the game. And uh, and it's very uncommon for me to. La I, I get weird about voice acting sometimes, but it was it's weird for me to focus on voice acting as something I wanted to, you know, hear more of, so I played more of the game. It's, uh, it's really remarkable. And uh, Logan Cunningham, like Darren Korb, is a bit of a uh, sort of an unofficial um, Supergiant employee. Uh, both of them, I think, have been involved in every single game in, the, in their oeuvre of four. Yeah, definitely. They're definitely the most prominent well, um, Logan Cunningham is definitely the most prominent voice and um, pretty prominent in Transistor as well, which we'll get to. And obviously in Hades, he is Hades as well as a bunch mm -hmm. of other characters. So, and rightfully up for an award for his uh, role in Hades. So well-deserved, I think, after, you know, like even, why was he not up for anything for this? Like, he's incredible. <laughs> this is his first voice role in a game, as far as I'm aware. To think like yeah, I, I, yeah. I think he was the actor friend of someone else in, on Supergiant um, Games. He and was Darren Corb's roommate. <laughs> yeah, that was it. And uh, and uh, it, I, I guess Corb was like, "Oh, Logan, you'd be perfect for this. Let's uh, let's record some audio." And it it's worked out splendidly ever since. Um, I, I mean, I, I haven't played a lot of Pyre, but I, I think I, I think probably Hades is my favorite performance of his, just because they give him so much to do. Boy. And uh, <laughs> uh, but the but. <laughs> But uh, he is spectacular in uh, in Bastion and, and one of the highlights, I think. But uh, yeah, the, the stage design, art design, audio design in this game is so stunning. And for it to be uh, like for you to know it's a small studio and play it on a uh, service like Young Steam or Young XBLA, which is just I don't, I don't know, it just made it it made it seem more impressive. Yeah. Yeah, and and his and his role as the narrator, I think we'll get more into it, but it kind of shifts and mutates. Yeah. And it's a very interesting part of the game. But uh let's see, where do we want to go next? Um I mentioned weapons a little bit. As you uh go forward in the game, the kid and the stranger, later Rux, decide that um or or at least you learn that some event called the calamity wiped out almost the entirety of, uh, of what was a large city or maybe even a large nation called Caledonia. And uh, the stranger and the kid decide we should look for more survivors, um, most of whom have been turned into monsters or sort of turned into ash. And uh, to do that, we should explore 
more areas outside the bastion and try to rebuild parts of the world as we seem to be able to do by exploring. So sort of area by area, you go through new stages and sort of learn a little bit more about the ruined the ruins of Caledonia and the calamity as you progress. And uh, another key aspect of gameplay is weapons. Uh, you find, oh shoot, it's either eight or ten weapons as you go through the game. And uh, and like each each time you find a new weapon it introduces new gameplay elements. Uh, like the stage where you find a weapon is usually ideally suited for use, use of that weapon. <laughs> uh, you can unlock weapon upgrades. There are stages where you can do time trials with each weapon or, or, or like special puzzles with each weapon as you, as you find them. And uh, they encourage you to experiment with different combinations and setups, but uh, other than maybe encouraging you to use the weapon in the stage that you find it. And uh, also each weapon is... Yeah, I should say was used by a group within Caledonia mm -hmm. as 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 part of their thriving civilization. So when you uh, like like the Kale Hammer is your starting starting weapon, which is a slightly over a slightly awkward sort of overhead um, hammer swing, and uh, like we said before, it lets you um, uh, demolish uh, environmental things like pots and uh, like like pots and tables easily. Like as you do the trials with the Kale Hammer or use the Kale Hammer a lot. The narrator will comment uh, about the how the breakers were a were a guild within Caledonia and sort of what they did and how they used the hammer. And there's like, like sort of hidden store hidden lore with every single weapon, which makes just using each weapon and and learning the weapon part of the fun of the game. I, I don't think of uh, this game as the names of different stages. Like I, I couldn't tell you the name of a of a single stage, but even without looking at a list, I could rattle off at least 10 of the weapons because like uh, for me playing this game was seeing the cool visual style and narration all around me and getting cool weapons one by one for me to master and figure out and, and like solve puzzles with. And that's, so this is a very, very indirect rambling way for me to ask you, what was your favorite weapon combination by the, let's say near the end game? <laughs> I'm sorry. If you want, if you want some time to think I can go first. Oh uh, yeah, go for it. All right. Well, for most of the time, after I had sort of figured out this game, both playing it eight years ago and playing it earlier this year, I liked having something for close range and something for long range. Um, and so, like, I remember starting off using the uh, the bow and the shield a lot, and then switch swapping out the shield for the uh, for the shotgun, or I should say, the musket. And uh, and then for a while, it was like the musket plus whatever the newest long range weapon was. And I eventually sort of, and I, and even after the end of the game, uh, like you getting the missile launcher and the mortar and a bunch of good uh, <laughs> long range stuff, I, I settled on uh, the pike and the carbine as being my two favorites. The, the pike is a is a spear that uh, you can either have for a nice close range strong thrust or a throw, and the carbine was is a rifle that can um that it takes a moment to aim but you could but has almost unlimited range and then you can have piercing bullets or or ricocheting bullets and uh, or you know or what have you so i would have i would sort of like carbine everything but if i got a little bit uh, hassled i would like i would like pike 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 run away uh, pike pike back to the rifle and yeah, so the carbine and the and the brushers pike were my uh, were my favorite loadout by the end. Yeah, I also like the pike. Um, I usually like focus on like crit damage with the pike because, mm -hmm. yeah, that's kind of its purpose really. It will do like it will do stacking damage and then will do 
crits more often than most weapons. Uh, I do, I got on more with the ranged weapons than I did with a lot of the close range ones. Like, um, I don't like the machete or the knife. Um, I found it really, I don't know, I just couldn't gel with it. Like, it was almost like you had to be too close to something. I liked being mid-range and even the hammer kind of let me be a little bit, like, have a little bit of a distance from the enemy. But, like, every ranged weapon, like, I found I was fairly good with, apart from the bow, which I I really struggled to aim straight. You know, like the trial that you have to do for that one, where it's all of like yeah, the... you, you have to, um the, the bow will pierce targets. So for the like it, the uh, trial for the bow gives you a bunch of targets in a certain layout, and you had to take out all of them in as few shots as possible. Yeah, I really struggled with that for some reason, and I don't know why. Um, I just really struggled with aiming that, but like all the other range weapons were fine because, like I say, I really liked the. I really like the rifle. I found that was really, really good. Um, by the end of the game, though, I was using the mortar, the one that, the, like the one that launches the like bomb really far. Um, yeah, the, the, the arcing shot with the bomb. Yeah, it was so good. Yeah, like it really, especially in the later stages of the game where you get lots of sequences where these like turrets are on the outside of the path and you can't reach them with anything else but you want to get rid of them really quickly because they do like um homing shots or continuous lasers for like five seconds and rather than stand there and guard the whole time i would rather just launch off one of those um like attacks and then try and run to safety a little bit um but yeah to be honest like i i didn't do too much experimenting with the most of the close range weapons like the pike was great and um i don't know whether you, i don't think you brought it up but like every weapon has like a unique skill as well that you either obtain when you get the weapon or you can buy it from a lost and found mm, um right. and the pike's special one is where you you do a dragoon jump basically um and you do so much damage with it um so i really like using that um but yeah it was mostly just the pike and then i kind of rotated between the rifle the mortar and um the spray gun i can never i can't remember the specific names of the weapons oh, the, the bellows the, the, the bellows the, yeah oh it, no the, it's like a, that's like a, a short range flamethrower oh no not that no the, the the one i can't remember what it is exactly but like it's the it's the spread gun the one if you stand closer to it like it does more damage but if you want to do oh, the, the, the the musket the one that's like the musket. A shotgun. yes sorry yeah, yeah. yeah okay and we're talking about upgrades and lost and found and uh, <laughs> and, and and choices. We should mention that um, there's items that you uh, find called cores, which I believe, I think that you find them all as the course of the story goes on. Maybe one or two are optional. But uh, every time you find a core, you are allowed to put a new building in the bastion. And this ranges from uh, item shots, shops to blacksmiths to a lost and found, where you, which gives you a different selection of weapons. And eventually, by the end game, you have six buildings, and then you find a second set of, of six cores uh, called shards to upgrade each building. So uh, there's like a, a different upgrade paths and choices that you make as you find more cores and spend uh, currency to upgrade your weapons. The best way to get currency is to complete all those weapon challenges that you unlock as you unlock weapons. Again, it's I think we're going to talk about this in every episode this month, but um, uh, Bastion does a great job of sort of giving you of like uniting storytelling gameplay and environment where uh as you use the, the guns more you get more storytelling from the narrator and learn more about the about the environment and each weapon interacts differently with the environment as you rebuild the environment you get more story and and see and see more of uh of old caledonia and 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 environments are designed to you know fit weapons better and this and there's storytelling and lore and lore surrounding each stage and each weapon 
that you get more the, the more you put in. It's it's remarkable. And uh, Alana and, and and Eva, I'm sure you can confirm that some of these weapons maybe feel like some weapons in Hades. Like 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 when you're <laughs> when, <laughs> totally. when you're aim, yes. when you're aiming the carbine uh, or or the rifle. Uh, it's like basically the same. Hmm, this is a little bit like a bow power shot, or uh, and, uh, and and the fang repeater, the first ranged weapon you get. Like, hmm, this is a rail gun, and I think I know about another super giant games rail gun. Yeah. So there's there's a uh, it's not it's not one to one. It's not like the six weapons in Hades are lifted from the twelve weapons in, in Bastion, but there's you can see like, okay, there's some design sensibilities, some some programming sensibility uh, like sensibilities here that there's a there's a lineage that I enjoyed very much. Um, but Eva, yeah. you didn't tell us your favorite loadout. What what are uh, the weapons you liked using the most by the near end game? So I, when I first played the game, I think my loadout was um, was musket and bow or something. But for this one, once I got carbine and um, carbine and machete fully upgraded, that was all I used. Um, I. Yeah, Alana's totally right that the machete has like basically no range, um, and I wasn't throwing it, but I just went hard on the crits for it. So, you know, anything that my carbine could not touch as a sniper rifle, then I just got in really close and used the machete because basically in any game that allows me to do some sort of build, I will almost always do like a dex thief sort of build. So <laughs> my character can just have like, very short range daggers that move very fast. I will do that <laughs> basically for anything, uh, including like Souls games and such. Um, so that was so that was the build that I used. But something else with it, you had uh, mentioned a couple of times, uh, Solosi, that it's encouraging. And that's a great word for it, that it encourages you, but never forces you into these weapon decisions. It has a level like the um, the level with the like alligators essentially that come yeah. up from the, oh come yeah up it, from the floor. and that, that's um, that's the pike's level right exactly yeah. and mm -hmm. so they're like hey here's the pike um, and you use the pike for a few minutes but then they show up with an arsenal where you can change out your weapon so you don't have to be married to that decision um, which I really like because it's not just throwing weapons at you that you're never going to use. You're at least going to have to use them for some amount of time just to test them out. Um, but you're not married to them, which is very important in games where like, you know, as great as Breath of the Wild is, there's just so many weapons that there's just going to be things that you're never going to use and they're just going to take up inventory space until you get rid of them. So oh, I've I've used this analogy before, but sometimes I, uh, I I like it when a game use like wants you to use every part of its toolkit, and some Zelda games I think do a terrible job of this, where they'll give you an item that you use in one dungeon and then never use ever again. Mm -hmm. um, and and I'm, I and I, I think I maybe made fun of Peter once in a different episode. Uh, the ball and chain and the spinner in um, Phantom Hour. I'm sorry, uh, Twilight Princess. Yeah. Are are two yep. items like that. Um, and it's funny, you know, we, I mentioned that uh, that uh, there are weapon upgrades in this game. Um, you, I think you get three weapon upgrades uh, when you first build the blacksmith and then an extra two, or maybe it's called the forge, forge uh, an extra two after you upgrade it with a shard. But each upgrade, you, get, you make a choice. And, um, yeah. and, and like I remember uh, both the machete and the pike have a knife throw and a spear throw as sort of their alternate attack, but I, I almost use them entirely... Uh, 
melee for melee, as as uh, Eva mentioned, her preference with the machete. I think that the pikes upgrades were like half of them were increased damage, increased critical damage, uh, increased critical hit chance, while the other ones were like uh, throw a second spear, the spear throws faster, like things like that. So it, but I obviously went melee every time I, but I, i'm more I, but i'm a little bit more like alana i i did not enjoy the machete as much and once i got a different close range weapon then i went to that instead and i think maybe it needs some help from upgrades like once you get that fourth or fifth upgrade for the war machete it gets maybe it takes an it, an extra leap so so, so like the, the the rusher's pike gives you like an extra body length or two of range and, but similarly high damage and high crit rate, and but a slower speed. This, it's like choosing between Raphael and Donatello in Turtles, Turtles in Time. Um, <laughs> everything both of you said was great. The game like wants to teach you each of these weapons a little bit, but does not force you into any uh, into any loadout loadout at any time, and uh, encourages uh, practice and experimentation. That was just so fun. Uh, but it's it's 12 very interesting very cool weapons and there's no wrong choice here uh except i don't know maybe maybe don't use the fang repeater by the time you get the the dueling pistols or the carbine those are just better they're just better (laughs) they're better versions of it yeah and like it is really interesting that the game does give you like it's a manageable amount of choice like you've got like you can choose between the weapon upgrades you can choose what weapons you want you can have any combination of things and even like as you're rebuilding the bastion like you can choose what order to have the buildings built in like in Mm -hmm. stages so there's a lot of gentle encouragement and choice in the game and I think that's a foreshadowing to something later on, I suppose. Like, choice is an important thing, at least in the two Supergiant games I've played, and I would imagine at least in Pyre as well, given the nature of oh, it. Oh, yes. Yeah, <laughs> but Pyre is um, very, very choice-driven. Yeah. Uh, and, and also, just notes of similarity to future games, uh, the one of the shops that you unlock is a potion shop that, that gives you sort of permanent uh, bonuses, and it's a distillery, another... isn't it? Actually, yeah, yeah, it's exa- alcoholic right. drinks that you try, like <laughs> consume to power up. I quite like. I think that's really cute. Some of the names for those drinks are really amusing. And, and also, there's a a shrine or a temple where you can put curses on yourself to make the game more difficult, but but yield but yield uh, but yield more more currency or more items. Yeah, and then there's like an achievement area, isn't there, where you like mm-hmm. can get extra money for fulfilling goals, like oh, kill this enemy this many times with this weapon or. I don't know, get like pick up a certain number of artifacts or something like that. So yeah, like you have to build all of these buildings, but like if you wanna level up straight away, then you can build the distillery first. But if you want to upgrade your weapons quicker, then you can do that first. It's a really oh, interesting one. I, I wanted to upgrade the weapons first. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I, I'm very into upgrading weapons in general in video games. There's there's yes. very few things for me more satisfying than turning my plus one sword into a plus two sword and having it glow slightly different or something. Yeah. That's uh I, I always enjoy that. But the, the Bastion giving you so much freedom in customization and allowing you to customize your gameplay experience with things like those potions and those uh, and those curses, again, feels a lot like Hades, which which Hades does brilliantly um, with, with the different boons and curses and heat that you put on yourself. Uh, but I, I think just goes back to the Supergiant Games design philosophy of giving people a lot of gameplay choice and some story choice, but always rewarding actions and always giving the player uh goals or 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 things to look forward to like um it makes accomplishing anything in bastion or many of their other other super giant games feel more rewarding because you get 
story rewards and gameplay awards for time invested or uh, consistently. And it's awesome. Like this is a fun action game that keeps throwing choices and rewards at you that are consistently interesting. And it's, it's awesome. I, I wish uh, every uh, character action game had that sort of that level of fun in the moment to moment gameplay and, you know, intrigue in the, in the possibilities of more gameplay. But anyway, let's go back to the game a little bit. Um, after, after you unlock a few other areas, um, the kid meets two other residents of the, or I should say survivors of the calamity, um, a young man named Zulf and a young woman named Zia. And uh, both of them are from uh, the enemies of Cal Caledonians, the Ura. The, the Ura has survived at least in greater numbers than the Caledonians have. And it's not, and at first, Ruck seems to indicate that the Ura might have caused the calamity. But then it becomes very clear that the Caledonians themselves caused the calamity. Zulf leaves the Bastion to defect to the Ura. And, uh, and in the last few stages of the game, um, you, uh, you're fighting against Ura soldiers to sort of, uh, to sort of, you know, confront Zia and Zulf. Yeah, um, you pick up a diary, don't you, um, in one of the mm -hmm. stages, and you bring it back, and it's basically the truth. And right. I don't know if it's revealed exactly at this point or whether it's later on. It it's sort of more complicated because um, I don't. Again, I think this is covered later, or it's covered in um one of the areas where you can fight hordes of enemies to find out more about the different characters. Do you know what bits I mean? Like where you smoke the pipe, or you go to the cook like, right, yeah. cooking pot. Um, <laughs> like um, Zia's father is called Ven, and he was um, like 50 years after um, the Ceylondians, or I believe that's how it's pronounced. Um, oh, I, I've been saying it the way of the, uh, the, of the region of Spain. <laughs> oh! Right. Yeah. So giving it the Van Morrison treatment. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, um, so it's like years and years ago, the Ura and the Ceylondians had a like a war, and Essentially, after that war, the Uras were exiled, but a certain number of them were forced to stay in Ceylondia, and that's where Zia was brought up. She was brought up in Ceylondia to a, her father, who was an Ura, and he was a brilliant scientist, like you said, Salosi. Um, and he create he was ordered to create a weapon to prevent another war happening. Essentially, it was like a a preventative, like it might happen. But just in case, it probably a, a won't bit, happen. Sorry. Yeah, a bit, a bit of a a nuclear cold cold war or a, a Vegna gun situation. Oh God, we're going back to that again. Uh, no, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I wasn't there, but I I know what we are. I know what it is. Um, but yeah. Um, so yeah, they brought the built this preventative weapon, and he found out the secrets, and he he like he didn't want to he didn't want to use it, so he ran away. But then he was forced to come back when he found out that his daughter was held hostage. And then he turned the weapon on Ceylondia and used it. And the weapon is the Calamity. So that's why um, the Kingdom of Ceylondia is in, like, fractured. So it's kind of... And Aura does do it, but it's it's at the hand of the Ceylondians, like, greed because they were expanding out so much. Um, I believe the war was caused because they were building out railroads over the Aura's territory and forcing them underground and things. So... Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a fault of um, the Ceylondians and a lot of Rux's narration in particular. Like you can feel that kind of guilt and reflection um, over what the Ceylondians did. Like he definitely 
he definitely ponders over a lot of it and is very regretful of what happened and wants to try and fix everything. So, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it makes it clear that there had been wars with the Aura in the past and that in modern times, Ceylandia was the oppressor and the aggressor and not and and not the victim uh but but sort of from his early narration uh you think rux is you know like referring to Ceylandia as a nation that was destroyed as the victim nation when really it was sort of their own hubris and their uh and, and their own actions um backfiring on themselves which which is uh again is is not exactly given to you in a single review in a single reveal it's 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 uh shown sort of um more gradually but by the end uh you're sort of fighting with the aura to um to to sort of have Z zolf answer to his betrayal and to and to bring zia back because the kid and zia kind of have a thing going i mean come on hmm. like it's, it's it's not it's not out it's not in text but they they, they kind of got a thing um i mean yeah it's it's very quiet though like it's, oh, yeah. like you can play the game without even like thinking about that and yeah. most of the time i did um because mm -hmm. it's it's very it's very light on it i think Oh no, um, they don't. They don't hit you over the head with it. But I, I think that yeah, they can, it's not like I. It's not like the end of. It's not like I love you. Like at the end of the game or something like that. And with with Rux, what I really like and what I alluded to is that his he basically becomes less reliable of a narrator yeah. as the game goes on. So it starts off and you know him he, he acting as the narrator. You think he might be omniscient. He's like, well, we're starting the story. We're not starting the story at the beginning, so you're kind of in media res, even though it, it appears that the kid is starting off by just getting out of a bed. Um, but then as the story comes on, okay, this person isn't just the stranger, like, you know, some sort of, um, you know, omniscient thing. This is an actual character named Rux. And Rux isn't just telling the story. Rux has an agenda. And then Rux is, like he gives he's kind of giving the kid choices throughout this but he's but he's not exactly uh he's not exactly a neutral party and then as the game goes on and on his knowledge kind of wanes of the situation that's going on to the effect that once the aura start showing up in greater numbers he just has no idea. He's just talking to Zia. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, I hope the kid does whatever cuz he is he doesn't know anymore. He doesn't have that part of the story and he's not really much of a narrator anymore. He's just a a character whose thoughts you're hearing alongside the kid's actions rather than someone who's actually telling it. Yeah, and I guess you can tell like even from the way that he changes describing the weapons like Salosi you were saying like he was saying that the things like the cannon and that were too much, but like earlier on, you were kind of telling us like what each weapon did in a vague, in a not a vague way, but like in a way that you could more clearly make sense of what it is, rather than oh no, that's really dangerous kind of thing. And then he just goes back to talking to Zia about things. Um, yeah, I I find the yeah I I've really noticed like I think it's probably when Zulf leaves, isn't it, that he really starts to shift into this kind of. Yeah, he's not as omnipotent as you think he is, and yeah, like the emotion pierces through a little bit more, and the choices he kind of drops in, or he hints towards what he wants to do. Like your goal at the end of the day is supposedly to rebuild the Bastion and to reset everything 
to a time before the calamity in the hopes that you'll fix everything. But there are lots of things, and I don't know if you're necessarily supposed to pick up on it on a first playthrough, but there are lots of hints throughout that are you really sure that's going to do anything? Because Rux is pretty unsure of that himself throughout, and there are various phrases that he says that, like, oh, hopefully it will fix things and okay. things like that. So, yeah. Well, and let's address it more directly. There's a, uh, um, right at the end of the game, you're, you sort of fight through a crowd, um, a, the Anura city or colony, and eventually you do find Zulf, and you sort of drag him back to the Bastion. You could also yeah. choose not to. Oh, yeah, yeah, yes. But there, I mean, if you do choose to bring him back, there's a, a scene that I think is pretty great of the Ura sort of just acknowledging the kid and just standing aside and letting him walk. <laughs> and uh, hmm. even even one one Ura tries to step forward and shoot him, but like an, an Ura next to him, like says, like, like sort of shoves, shoves him and, and has him stop attacking the kid. Um, it, it's it's kind of hard to describe, but just a moment of like them honoring the kid's struggle in a way that they just sort of part the part ways and let him slowly walk back to the bastion. You think it's gonna but, go all crisis cool, but it doesn't basically. <laughs> kind of, yeah. But but when you get back to the bastion, you make sort of a bigger choice than than uh, than um, bringing back Zulf or not, which is, do we um, use our technology here to build a vessel like a like a some kind of space shuttle? to just travel away from the Bastion and try to settle new lands or explore new lands, or do we use the Bastion to reset the world again? But we don't know if that'll prevent the Calamity or not. We just know it'll, it's a reset button. And uh, I, I think the ending scenes during the, or actually the, the montage of scenes during the cut, during the end credits will be different depending on your choice. But if you do what I did and play a new game plus, <laughs> some, of the, some of the narration at the beginning is slightly different. Oh, okay. And, and it's it's not really that explicit, but uh, I, I think what they're they're postulating is whenever you do a new game of this game or even a new game plus, that's a previous player hitting the reset button, and it right. didn't work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like it even re like I'm assuming did both the first time you played it, did both of you choose to reset? I I believe I I chose to reset many years ago, but this time I I chose to to um to press on into the unknown. Um, I think I think I reset I reset the first time, and I definitely reset this time. Um, but I did so for different reasons. Okay. Because um, I guess I was viewing it I I guess I was viewing it differently. Um, so when like when I first played this, you know, two and a half years ago or something. Um, I saw it kind of as a more personal thing. Like it could be um, like sort of individual relationships, like breaking with um, what exactly Rux wanted. Um, yeah. Like restoration was what Rux wanted and evacuation is what you'd want. Um, and then when I was playing it this time, I kind of saw it in more broad terms and I guess to put a political stance to it, like reform versus revolution. Yeah. In a way. Um, I guess that's just where my brain is now rather than where it was. Um, so I picked restoration because I was thinking, I see that Rux made mistakes and that the Ceylonians made these mistakes, but I have faith that they could do better. Yeah. Um, 
And I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that decision. Like I just made that decision yesterday, and I'm kind of thinking about it, and I'm thinking maybe not because what does Rux actually do in this game tangibly besides narrate your actions and give you a calamity cannon? Like right. everything wrong he that he was a part of, and ostensibly the kid wasn't really a part of. Was just kind of like Rux was a part of making that happen. And for the kid, the calamity happened to him. And yet Rux just kind of thrusts all this responsibility on the kid and doesn't really do anything himself. He's He has this dogma about like the bastion is going to be everyone's gain. It's not just for me, it's for everyone. And all I can do now is wait for the kid to make his decisions. And I kind of see that as how we are viewing things currently between like an older generation who is like, okay, this next generation will fix the things that we've done wrong. Yeah. And we're just going to be hands off, pass it on and have them kind of clean up the muck. Um, and that was kind of, the they way also I was sort of insist, that. insist that the new generation play in there in, but they're, they're, they're also reluctant to give up power and right. instead, of allowing, mm-hmm. instead of allowing the new generation to make their own choices, they're trying to sort of force them into, if not the same choices, at least the same structure that they lived in, even if that's, yeah. even if that'll just create a, a, another cycle of mistakes. Um, and, and, and that's, that's more my interpretation. Um, mm-hmm. Rux stubbornly is hanging on to the bastion and stubbornly wants to press the reset button enough times until the calamity won't happen anymore but i mean uh go, going back to the old that that old saying of the definition of insanity which makes me think of far cry 3 which is a a, a very you know a, maybe my favorite shooting shooter of all time um if him pressing the reset button expecting to eventually fix it but it's not but it's not happening we don't know how many times the reset button has been pressed then when does it start does it st- stop being a good idea Right, yeah, and it recontext it like recontextualizes that first sentence in the game, doesn't it? Um, the first line of narration, which just says, "Proper story is supposed to start at the beginning." Ain't so simple with this one. So, like, when you've like, how many times already has that reset button been pressed? Because like, it ain't so simple. This is the start of a story, but it's not the start of the story, is it? Like, how many times have we been through this? And like, I, I did not reset. And I think I don't know whether it's because I've played so many games where I know the reset the world button never works. Like I just I, like never works. I, I, I played Near Automata earlier this year. I I, I oh. want to break the cycle. Yes, breaking the cycle seems like the right choice to me now. Yes, exactly. Um. So yeah, and I picked up on that like everything that Eva said. Like you know what has Rux done he, other than talk us through everything, and then even then he's kind of not doing that anymore. And apart from giving us the cannon, and the older to new younger new like generation, like why are we trying to fix what's been broken? And like I also get like the viewpoint or like the decision you made Eva the first time you played it because you know what, I probably would have done the same thing. I probably would have been like, yeah, I believe in these people and I want them to rebuild what they've got. But it's like trying to put a, for a terrible, really cliche analogy, you're trying to put like a square keyhole in like a circular hole or something like that. It's just, it's not quite going to work. And so in my head, the only thing I could do 
was leave and start anew. I mean, obviously, there's still New Game Plus, so actually, you know, <laughs> what does that mean? Um, but yeah, it, it it's really, really interesting how, like, what is such a simple decision, like, has so much weight to it? Right. And, and I think it's also kind of, I think um, ethnicity kind of plays an important part in this because there's, you know, the Ceylonians and then there's the, mm. the sort of uh, or a, um, you know, ethnic minority group. And it's kind of like the Ceylonians made all of the Ceylonians made all of these mistakes. And then they ask, they demand of the aura to kind of just be complicit. Like, let us build a, let us build a railroad over your lands. We're not going to ask permission for that, but that's just what's going to happen. And uh, hope you don't get mad at us. <laughs> <laughs> and then trying to kind of brainwash some of their people, you know, having Ven build this weapon that's probably going to, you know, was supposed to be used to wipe out his people, essentially, bringing Zia to Ceylandia um, as an ethnic or a person um, who is not taught her own language. Like she can't read the journal that her dad wrote, but Zolf can. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And that she was kind of like picked on and bullied um, for her ethnicity in this city. Right, yeah. And it feels like, especially because I chose to save Zolf, I didn't feel right going through all of it again either, just because of a lot of the reasons that you said, like, why would I want to press the reset button and make them go through all that pain again? Like, go like relive everything when I can take Zolf at the very least and let the aura have what they want, I suppose, and let the Bastion collapse and just go start anew somewhere else. I, I think that the first time I played this game, pressing the reset button was an impulse decision. Like, of course, I want to, I want to try and yeah. rewrite history so this mm. this place doesn't get destroyed. But then like having thought about the game for years and years and and just having more perspective made me realize like this um like that reset button is perpetuating what might be an endless cycle and rux is stubbornly hanging on to that cycle and i think having played the game twice and understanding it better now i think my sympathies are more with zia and less with rux and we need to we need to start something new with zia and i and mm -hmm. so so i i chose to depart I don't know how much there is left to say about Bastion. Uh, this game is fascinating from a gameplay perspective. I think maybe the worst thing about Bastion is that sometimes the movement feels clumsy. But that's but I but I'm 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 giving them. I'll give Supergiant a pass for making their first game as a team of uh, as a, as a team in the single digits. Yeah, right. I don't I don't adore the combat. I must say, but I do love the amount of choice. Like, there's a healthy amount for me to experiment with that. You know, at the end of the day, you can only use a skill, roll, and attack, and then attack with a ranged weapon. But at least there's enough choice to make it more varied, kind of thing. Like, yeah, yeah the, the combat variety is good, and the um, and the, and and and, uh, and and parts of encounters are good. But like, just sometimes the basics of moving and attacking feel clumsy in a way that I think they've uh, improved over the years. To which point, Hades is just. <laughs> just runs like a swiss watch with the combat in that game 
Um, it, you like just Zagreus just feels much faster and more powerful than the kid. Going into this, I when we said we were doing the Supergiant Games Month, I said, you know, I'll play Bastion. That's like a six-hour game. Um, it'll be cool to see what um, what is still there from the Supergiant formula that I just saw in Hades. And to be sure that there's tons of that. And it's really cool to see just how many of these design elements are still at play nine years later. But it's also a great game that holds up well and really had me uh, narratively very driven by the narrative and really thinking about um, you know things in our world currently that have been on my mind a lot so it still feels very timely yeah definitely and like yeah again to echo both of your thoughts like it's really yeah it's not the first big indie rpg or the big first big indie game but it might be the first to have narrative as maybe its strongest point. Like, I like all the other examples we've given are all like kind of they're not. I don't want to say throwbacks. Castle Crash is, is definitely not like a throwback. It's its own kind of thing. Um, Super Meat Boy is like challenging platformer kind of thing that's evolved into its own thing now anyway. And uh, I'm afraid has got a narrative to it. And obviously the ending kind of brings everything to light. But like. Bastion prides itself on unfolding in front of your eyes and it, it tells a story so confidently and that I don't think any other indie game had done until that point. So I think that's why it stands out so much to me and probably to a lot of other people. And like, I mean, even with Hades, <laughs> like I think of Supergiant Games as a studio that and, and, and I think this is a criticism that was leveled at them for a while is like their games always looked, sounded, looked good, sounded good and told really great stories. But their gameplay never matched up to it, the gameplay was always good, but it never matched that quality of like the narrative visual audio thing. Um, but yeah, like it, it's just it's really remarkable what it does for like 2011 like and the fact that there's still nothing else really like bastion with a narrator who tells everything and everything just pops up as it happens like it's kind of remarkable to me that it didn't kick off a lot of anything special apart from the studio itself i suppose but yeah <laughs> well it the narrator being an element of the game reminds me of a few things like uh, uh, Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time. Where, yes. Where, where it's uh, the conceit of that game is that the prince is, t is telling a story of the princess of how of how he appeared at her window. And uh, so like every time you die in the game, you'll get to a game over screen. But then the prince will say, no, no, that's not exactly how it happens. Let me let me run it back. And, um, <laughs> and but it's not nearly as present uh, as a as a consistent disembodied voice the way Rux or the Stranger is in Bastion. Just so many cool ideas and cool elements coming together makes Bastion really special. And even if, if not every, like not every single column in, uh, you know, in the grand matrix of scoring it is a 10 out of 10, but it's, uh, it, it's just a, an excellent package, an excellent indie game that uh, doesn't overstay its welcome one bit. No, exactly. And one last point on like the voice lines and stuff. Um, there is one line of dialogue at the end that isn't the narrator, um, but throughout the game, like the only voice you ever hear is the narrator, and he has no. There's no repeated dialogue, 
And there's 3,000 plus lines of dialogue in that game. Yeah, it, it's a it's a heck of a thing. All right, so I think it goes without saying that we all enjoyed this game and have thought about it a lot just because this is a a, a compelling game that is thought-provoking in both the gameplay choices it makes and the story choices it makes and the choices it gives the player. This is a just a really, really solid uh, action game slash indie RPG that... I don't know. You, you Facebook commenters can say not an RPG if you want, but I, uh, but I, you're my least favorite people. Uh, you have levels. Um, this is a hundred percent an RPG. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Works for me. Hundred percent an RPG. Alana, you want you know what is also an RPG? Uh, where are you going with this? I'm going that next week we're going to have an episode all about Tales of, which is a series of JRPGs, if there ever was a series of JRPGs. Those are those games are RPG as hell. The most JRPG of RPG, for sure. December 1995 is the anniversary of Tales of Fantasia, the very first Tales of game. It was a Japan-only release that eventually got an official release in Game Boy Advance, but because I'm a maniac, I've played it on three systems. Uh uh, we're not going to have an episode specifically about Tales of Fantasia, but we are going to have an episode ce- celebrating the Tales of series with a Tales of Fantasy draft, where uh, a few we have not recorded the episode yet, but a few of us are going to um, play a game that's a little bit like a fantasy sports snake draft, but with Tales of characters. We did a Final Fantasy Fantasy draft last year, and we're going to try and recreate that with a new series, and it might get a little weird. I'm looking forward to see how that turns out. It's going to get really weird. Excellent. Are, are you and I going to have to fight over Max is the real question. I don't like, want to. I, I, I'm not am, gonna am do going to do the voice. Am I going to have to draft Max in the first round just so I can, cons- like, I can, I, I can ensure him on my team? These are the kind of questions that have been bothering me for weeks. Uh, but we're, that is going to come to a head next week with the Tales of Fantasy Draft episode. And later this month, you already knew, we're having episodes on Transistor and Pyre. And then uh, for the final Thursday of 2020 is going to be our typical year-end episode. Uh, We have not even thought about recording that yet, and it's already daunting just thinking about the entire year all at once. Um, but, uh, But next year is 2021. My math is not wrong this time. And the first game journal of 2021 will be Baten Kaitos, Eternal Wings and Lost Ocean, which was the winner of a public poll that we held a few months ago around the time of episode 250. So uh, this month, Transistor and Pyre, later in January, Baten Kaitos. And we have some other ideas planned, but they aren't quite nailed down yet. So please listen. Please look forward to it. Uh, but if you want to reach out to us more directly than just listening and looking forward to it, you can email retro at rpgfan.com or comment on RPG fans' message boards, our Facebook page, our Instagram, Twitter, Discord, Twitch channel, something streaming almost every day. This is only, uh, Retro Encounter is one of four po- podcasts in RPG Fan alongside Random Encounter about randomness, Rhythm Encounter about RPG music, and Phoenix Edge, which is a uh, our affiliate podcast that is weekly and mostly focuses on current events. Please listen to Random Retro Phoenix and Rhythm on iTunes or Google Play or Spotify or however you listen to us. Give us feedback, give us clicks, give us listens. All of that is appreciated. But uh, speaking of appreciation, if you want to demonstrate some appreciation to to my panelists, how can they reach you individually, starting with you, Eva? 
So you can find me on RPG fans, general social media accounts, and you can find me on my personals as at Eva Lise, Twitter, Discord, and Instagram. And Alana. My panelists. I'm my own person. Thank you very much. Gosh. I took that possessiveness to heart. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, sorry. sorry. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, you could. I'm a lot less vicious than that normally. Uh, but if you want to find me on Twitter, I am at Alana Haig. So come and find me there. Um, I'm also on the RPG Fan Discord. I lurk around a little bit. I am Alana on there. And if you would like to email me, you can at Alana H at RPGFan.com. And uh, I am not my own person. I am your host. Uh, I, I belong. I belong to the world, and not certainly not myself. But if you if you want to reach out to me directly, um, the easiest way is Twitter. I am at the Real Monsoon most of the time. At Evoker for Dogs other times. At Bravely Podcast even additional times. And uh, I'm also Monsoon Mike on RPG Fans Discord. So uh, I think I need to um, fire up a new game plus on Transistor to re- to refamiliarize myself with that game before moving on to my first playthrough of Pyre uh, ever for the new year. Uh, I, I think, I, I, Eva, I think you and I will both finish our gaming goals for the year. We're not, we're not going to leave anything on the shelf. We're going to roll credits on everything we intend to roll credits on. Does that sound good? No. <laughs> oh, it's going to be it's gonna be rough. I've got, oh, I've got, no. I've got 14. I've got Persona 5 Royal. I, oh, my 14. God. Oh. Forget it. Forget it. Yep. Met, yep. Uh, game overboard. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's done. Yep. <laughs> so is this podcast. Thank you. Good night. Good luck. <laughs>